Hello, welcome. You're listening to The Yarn on Radio Fodder. I'm Fia Walsh. Today on the program, planning and planting for climate change in the Pacific. First, I would like to pay my respects to the Wurundjeri peoples of the Kulin Nation on whose unceded land we are recording today. Here on The Yarn, we showcase some of the best reporting from the graduate journalism courses here at the University of Melbourne. And this week, we're joined by the new Centre for Advancing Journalism cadet, Jordan Beasley. Good morning, Jordan. Hi, Fia. Thanks for having me. So your story starts in a small greenhouse in Fiji. How does what's growing there relate to climate change? So this greenhouse is part of the Centre for Pacific Crops and Trees, uh, which is uh, part of a broader organisation called the Pacific Community. And within this organisation, scientists work tirelessly to gather important species, uh, plant species uh, in particular, from across the Pacific and house them within this greenhouse. And the reason that they do that is because uh, with increasing shocks of climate change, uh, these plants are at threat of becoming extinct or are already being wiped out by climate shocks such as drought, um, rising sea levels, um, as well as um, cyclones, which we have seen uh, a lot in the past few years in the Pacific. And so what they do within this greenhouse is collect the species uh, and collect tissue from these particular plants and grow them within a lab that is also part of this centre. Uh, and these uh, species that they're collecting have become a lifeline um, for countries across the Pacific because whenever a disaster occurs... Uh, these plants are shipped to the countries uh, to then support food security within communities that have been affected. Because mm. we know that the Pacific is a region that's particularly vulnerable to climate change events such as sea level rising and extreme weather, but I guess we don't automatically think of the uh, corollary issues such as food security. So this centre sounds like a seed bank, but you refer to it as a gene bank. Are they the same thing? So there's a bit of a difference between a seed bank and a gene bank. Um, You can use them interchangeably because I guess by the virtue of the fact that they are uh, a place to store like seeds or genetic tissue of a plant variety. But where we tend to more so use the term gene bank is where it is particularly tissue or it is a cell that's collected from that plant. Um, So for this Centre for Pacific Crops and Trees, it's in fact just tissue that's collected. And it's in fact the only gene bank of its kind within the Pacific. So it is essentially the guardian of Pacific plant species. What kind of crops do they grow? Um, So when I spoke to Ulamila Lutu, uh, who is the acting curator for the centre, and um, she lives within within Suva, which is where the centre is located, they were growing banana, cassava, yams, breadfruit, um, as well as uh, bananas, um, which are all integral to food security across the Pacific, particularly yams. She said that's what they have the the most variety of within the centre and is what they're constantly uh, sending to countries. Um, And the reason that uh, this is frequently sent to countries is because with rising sea level, um, the soil is becoming contaminated by salt water and it's ruining crops um, for a number of farmers across the Pacific. So they're constantly having to send these plants back out so that they can 
replant them within within their communities. So who is using the seed bank? Is it all across the Pacific? So it is all across the Pacific, but it has actually grown. So in speaking to Ula Miller, she was at the same time quite proud, but also um, quite sad uh, to tell me that they're now also sending plants to Southeast Asia as well as in the Caribbean um, where plants like taro are also a staple and that she's proud on one hand because it speaks to how important the centre is but is also finds that devastating because it also speaks to the scale of this problem um, and it's getting to the point where there's just so many orders that they're struggling to keep up. Um, the frequency is just becoming more and more as the climate emergency is becoming worse. Do they have the resources to keep up? They do at the moment, yes. Um, on the resource question though, the issue is more within the country itself. Uh, so when these plants are delivered to the country that has made the order or requested um, the centre to, to ship a number of plantlets. What kind of numbers are we talking? Can, do you have any figures? Um, so I don't have an overall figure, but when I spoke to Ula Miller, she told me that they're still working to fulfil the 9,000 plantlet order um, that was made from Fiji uh, when Tropical Cyclone Harold hit, which was in April of last year. Um, so that's now a year later. And while they have delivered the bulk of it, they're still working to fulfil that order because at the same time of receiving that order from Fiji, um, Tropical Cyclone Harold, Harold also wreaked havoc on Vanuatu, as well as Solomon Islands, as well as Tonga. Um, and particularly for Vanuatu, because it was the worst hit, uh, they had to really focus on making sure that they got the plantlets there first. Um, but back to your question on resources. So they're doing their best to keep up. Um, but in talking to Ulu Miller, she said... The resource issue that they're concerned about is within the Ministry of Agriculture within the countries that receive these plants. So they send the plants from the centre to the Ministry of Agriculture where they're planted in their own greenhouses that's run by the government and then they uh, then ship the plants to communities or send them however, however they can or need to. Um, but Ministry of Agriculture at the time of say a cyclone such as Tropical Cyclone Harold, Harold are already dealing with a number of competing priorities. So ensuring that those plantlets are out on time and getting to where they need to be is not always as, as seamless as one would hope. Where does Australia fit into this? Are we helping out? So the Pacific Community is a regional organisation which has 26 members of which Australia is a part of. So we're contributing in terms of that. Um, in being a member, we do support with, with, with money into this organisation. However, I guess looking at Australia's commitment to climate change adaptation programs such as this one at the Centre for Pacific Crops and Trees, we are behind comparatively to other countries. Um, our foreign aid budget since 2013 has been slashed by a third. Um, we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world and yet um, we provide the same amount of aid as Greece, which is ex experiencing experienced bankruptcy in the past few years. So that's, I guess, sort of saying something about where 
our commitments lie. We also don't contribute anything to the Green Climate Fund, which is the body to support um, countries experiencing the climate emergency. Yeah, it's a bit embarrassing, to be honest. So someone puts in an order for some plantlets at the gene bank. First of all, why are they called plantlets? Is this the same as seedlings? So it's a little bit different. Plantlets uh, is for referred to when it's a cell or tissue that is taken from um, what I call in the story the mother plant. And then that tissue or cell is then used to multiply the plant upon thousands. Um, seedlets is where you actually collect the seed from a particular plant and then it is, I guess, reproduced that way. So that's why throughout the story we refer to them as plantlets because, yeah, they're collected from tissue. Oh, wow. Okay, so order in for some plantlets. What happens next? Um, so Ulla Miller's team, uh, yeah, so they receive the order from countries that need it. Or if there's an emergency such as Tropical Cyclone Herald, they'll, they'll know that an order is going to come from that country. So they'll already start preparing. So they'll collect these plantlets from the lab and they'll place them in sterile bags and at that point, the plantlets are two months old and they're already sprouting leaves and roots. They're placed in these sterile bags and they're shipped to the countries. And then, as I mentioned earlier, once they reach these countries, the Ministry of Agriculture put them in their own greenhouses that the centre has helped these countries to set up. And they then plant them until those plants have acclimatised and then they're sent out to communities. And is there support for these communities to then turn these plants into productive crops? Well, the, I guess subsistence farming um, is, I guess, the bulk of food security within a lot of these countries. So they already are adept farmers at, I guess, knowing how to plant and, and then what uh, support is needed for that plant to then produce food in, it, in its life cycle. I'm actually not sure whether part of the centre, they also have programs to actually, I guess, encourage more climate resilient farming, but definitely something interesting to explore perhaps for another story. How much does it cost countries to get these plantlets? Um, well, so it doesn't actually cost them anything because it's, it's well, I guess in a way that it does because uh, this centre is funded by the 26 uh, countries that are members of the organisation. But in terms of immediately procuring those plants, it doesn't come at a fee. And what would happen in countries like Fiji or Vanuatu after a natural disaster if this gene bank didn't exist? Well, I guess that's a good question. Um, there are numerous aid agencies working across food security within these countries to support um, when an emergency happens like a cyclone, but also those sort of slow but just as disastrous effects like saltwater contamination as sea levels are rising. And so there are a lot of organisations as well as the governments in country working to bolster that food security and have their own stocks to, to support that. But um, I think that there would be a serious gap missing by not having this centre for the reasons that we've spoken about, so that uh, the subsistence farmers can receive the plantlets to actually support their own food security as soon as possible. But also because this centre is housing uh, plant species that could very well go extinct because of climate change. Um, so it's really important that 
if a type of plant is wiped out in a particular country and it's only found in that country, that we know the centre has it and that it can be restored when the time is right. Um, and I think that's sadly the dire situation that a lot of Pacific countries are facing with the climate emergency. Yeah, I I guess that's an important part of the work that gene banks and seed banks are doing is, is not only providing the plants afresh when they're needed, but it, it's like a library or a repository of these species that are in danger. Your, your story says there are 1,750 gene banks around the world. Do we get to a point where they're not handing out the plants, instead they are just keeping them in, in the hopes that it will be a suitable climate at some point in the future? So I think that there's room for both because we're always going to be needing to plant crops during the climate emergency. It might just change what crops they are. Um, so I give an example in my story where uh, they found that a crop species in Pulau was more resilient to saltwater contamination and that was a yam variety, which is very important um, culturally in the Pacific. And so Ulla Miller has told me that they're now using that particular variety to send to places where saltwater contamination has been a huge issue because they know that that plant will be more resilient. But in terms of actually collecting species um, to, to house because we know that they very well will probably go extinct, that's also happening as well. Um, and I talk to that about uh, talk to that in the story about um, Charlie Varon, who's a really well known uh, marine biologist uh, in Australia, and he uh, is starting what he calls the coral arc. And so he's collecting corals from the Great Barrier Reef that he knows will not survive uh, ocean heating um, and the climate emergency. And so he's collecting those um, cells and tissue from those corals to be re-established and replanted upon those reefs um, once, I guess, we've, we've controlled this spiralling emergency that we're currently in, uh, oceans are no longer experiencing heat waves. Yeah, I, I found that point really tragic, but also somewhat hopeful because I'd never considered the fact that you can replant corals as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's sad that it's hopeful, but it, but it is, yeah. This is only going to get worse in, in the near future. Um, the emergency is here and, and we are going to feel the increased effects of climate change for the rest of this century. What plans does the Gene Bank have for the future? I, um, I put that question to Ulla Miller and um, her response was very much in, in the Fijian culture style to to laugh in her good-natured humour and to say, well, that's a very good question because I guess it's a question that all organisations working on the front line of the climate emergency are asking themselves because the scale of this threat is just so great. And um, her response was that all they can keep doing at the moment is what they are and to scale up to try and meet the threats of the climate emergency as they emerge and they understand what those are and pray. She said she's praying every day that they can keep up and can help people that need it. Here on Radio Fodder, you're listening to The Yarn. My name is Fia Walsh and my guest today is Jordan Beasley. Jordan, we might look at how you went about reporting this piece now. 
the story is part of the Covering Climate Now initiative. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. So the Covering Climate Now initiative is part of the Columbia Journalism School and they created um, Covering Climate Now as a network to encourage journalists to view the climate emergency as a cross-cutting theme across everything that they report on. So climate change isn't just a beat that sits within the environmental beat. Um, Climate emergency is something that you should be talking about no matter what beat you cover because it is such a pervasive issue across um, how we live our lives. So if you're reporting on business, if you're reporting on economics, on crime, um, so often climate change is going to come into that. And it's all, it's, it's providing journalists resources and the understanding to, to do the story better as well. There's a discussion about how to write about the climate emergency. Do you talk about it in emergency language? Um, because there's maybe fear that that would scare people into inaction where they feel overwhelmed by the magnitude of this problem. But also, you want to convey the seriousness of the emergency that we're in. How do you see a journalist's role in reporting about climate change? What's your approach? Well, I actually learned a really valuable lesson from doing this story because it was actually meeting a brief of covering climate now. And that was uh, a call out to journalists across the world to write a story about living through the climate emergency and for those to be published on Earth Day to essentially make a statement. And what they encouraged journalists to do was to take a human-centred approach. So rather than bombarding audiences with these facts and figures around the climate emergency and how dire it is, what does that actually look like for society, for a particular individual? How is it affecting them now? And so that's why I chose to look into Ulla Miller's story about um, these plantlets and providing them across the Pacific because it's all well and good um, to write a story about the facts and figures around species extinction in the Pacific, but I think it resonates with people more when they say, when they say okay, well, what's being done about this? And even though this issue is so, so huge and um, I, I guess very frightening that, uh, you know, are we going to meet, be able to meet the scale required? I think it reaches and touches people more to see these people on the front line doing what they can. You are the new cadet at the Centre for Advancing Journalism. Can you tell for maybe new students who don't really understand how that role fits into the centre, what are you doing? What is that position? Sure. So the Centre for Advancing Journalism chooses one of their graduates from the University of Melbourne's Journalism School to take on a year-long contract within the centre as their cadet journalist. And so that involves um, writing or doing audio or video work that's published on The Citizen and also doing some work with the students as well to, to support across various projects that they might be working on with The Citizen and as well Joe Chandler, who's the editor of The Citizen. Um, So I was lucky enough to be able to write this brilliant story while cadet for the citizen. I'm interested in the environment and interested in the Pacific. Um, So I'm very lucky to be able to really sink my teeth into into those really important issues that I love while cadet for the citizen. You've only recently started, but 
how does working at The Citizen compare to writing for it as a student? I guess you're you're a bit more um, experiencing that editor and journalist relationship um, by working directly with the teachers in the journalism school um, to say, hey, I've got this idea. I think it would be really good for the citizen. And having that two-way feedback of them being like, oh, what if you tried it this way? I think it would work better. Or them saying, yep, great idea. Go for it. Can you meet this deadline? Um, so it is, I guess, a bit more of a step towards that newsroom style experience. However, perhaps not quite as fast paced because um, I guess we're very lucky to be given the opportunity to, to take a bit longer to work on certain stories and to really challenge yourself and also to build a niche in a way which you might not get the same opportunity in your first year within a newsroom. Yeah, I'm, I'm still a student, but I have done some internships and I think something I've been reflecting on is the privilege that you have as a student to really focus on a story that you want to tell. You're not so much confined by the news value of the story. Um, you're allowed to find your own angle and you're allowed to spend a lot of time on it, which, you know, in the workforce, you may not have that space. Yeah, definitely. Jordan, where can our audience find you? So um, I have a website, um, which is www.jordanbeasley.com. Um, but also I have a person profile on The Citizen where you can see um, all the work that I've written for The Citizen. And you can also find me sitting in the Centre for Advanced, Advancing Journalism if you want to come have a chat in person. Jordan, thank you so much for joining me on The Yarn today. Thanks, Fia. You can find Jordan Beasley's story, Pacific Scientists Planning and Planting for a Warmer World at thecitizen.org.au. Thanks as always to Radio Fodder producer Mark Yin and our graphic designer Rose Gertzakis. My name is Fia Walsh. See you next week here on The Yarn.